us through another seminary. Just really grateful for more things that I got to learn, the ways I got to grow. And thank you for your continued prayers for us. I'll be taking some summer classes. So actually the first one starts tomorrow. <laughs> so it's uh, just right on as we continue training. So we can be more useful to the Lord as we can come back to New Jersey. Anyways, on to today's lesson. Today we are talking about Abram, later called Abraham, extremely important figure in redemptive history. The title of today's class is God Calls Abram. But briefly, let's mention what we talked about last week. Last week we talked about Job. And what is the great lesson of the book of Job? It's not merely that one should trust God through suffering. That's true. But there's a nuance to that that we want to emphasize, or rather that is emphasized in Job. We must all remember the great difference between us and God. And for that reason, humble ourselves before him, no matter what circumstance in life we find ourselves. We must never rise in our hearts to a position of judging God where we complain about God, we question God's motives, we demand an explanation from God. For in doing these things, we pridefully exalt ourselves even above God. But of course, this doesn't mean that we don't come to God in honest prayer. Even as many righteous persons do in the scriptures, coming to God with sorrow, with confusion, with hurt, with lament, and saying to God, God, I am in great pain. I feel very afflicted. I am greatly sorrowful. I know everything happens according to your will, but I do not understand what you are doing. You are crushing me. You promised to take care of your children, but right now it, it doesn't look like you're doing that from what I can see. That's a, it's fine. It is even righteous to express those things to God if there's another side to it. There needs to be a but in such expressions. If not spoken verbally, at least in the heart, even as we lament such things to God, we should still be able to say in our hearts, but, oh God, I remember my place, but I can't understand everything from my small perspective. You are God. You are always wise and good and just. Therefore, I wait on you. Remember my pain and sorrow. Vindicate my trust in you, O God. Show yourself to still be the one who keeps his promises. Don't abandon me. Sustain me in this dark night. And I know you will hear my prayer, O God, because you are who you are. You are my fountain of life, and you will be with me, even through fire. The kind of prayers we want to be praying and such prayers that emphasize the lesson of the book of Job. Be sure that God's people will experience great suffering in this world and great sorrow. But if we walk by humble faith, we will be, as Paul says, sorrowful yet always what? Rejoicing. 2 Corinthians 6.10. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. If we want a steadfast faith and peace and joy, no matter the circumstances, it comes, first of all, by our humbling ourselves before God and being satisfied in him alone. So let's not forget the lesson of Job, but we move on from Job today to a man who comes after Job, or may have been 
living around the same time as Job. That man is Abram. And we're going to spend a few lessons, all right, more than a few lessons on Abram slash Abraham. And our first lesson is simply on God's calling of Abram. What are we looking at today? How did God call Abram? How did Abram respond to God's call? Why did God call Abram? To what did Abram ultimately look in God's call? What was his great hope? And how can Abram's response and thinking instruct us today in how we ought to live? These questions form a rough outline that we'll be following and exploring in today's class. Our text is Genesis 11, verses 27 to 12, 9. Just one section of scripture rather than a whole book like we did last time. Let's pray before we continue. Our Lord and God, we humble ourselves before you now. We want to be fed by your word. We want to understand it better. We want to apply it to our lives. Lord, you want us, just as you wanted the people of Israel, to know a lot about this one man and what you did in him and through him. We thank you for the testimony. There's record about Abram. Help me to be able to explain it well. Help us to be able to understand it and apply it, God, so that we might have the same kind of faith as he had. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let's go ahead and read the historical account of God's calling of Abram. So please take your Bibles and open to Genesis 11. Genesis 11, starting verse 27. We've actually been in Genesis 11 already. In the early part of this passage, we have the account of the Tower of Babel, rather the city and Tower of Babel. And then after that record, we have a genealogy that links Shem to Abram. And then the text we're going to look at starts right after that genealogy. We're going to pick up in verse 27. It has a little bit more to say about Abram's father, Terah. All right, follow along with me starting in verse 27. We'll go down to 12.9. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his birth, in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, chapter 12. Now Yahweh said to Abram, so it says the Lord there, this is just the name Yahweh. Now Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. You know, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, 
and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out from the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to Yahweh, who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to Yahweh and called upon the name of Yahweh. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. And that's where we'll stop. Let's start by just making basic observations on our text. A lot of information about Abram's relatives. Notice that information mentioned, especially in the beginning of the passage. We have Terah, Abram's father, Nahor, Abram's brother, Haran, Abram's other brother, who dies in Ur. We have Lot, the nephew of Abram, also the son of Haran, Abram's brother. We have Sarai, who is Abram's wife and his half-sister. Not mentioned here, but he actually, she shares the same father as Abram, but a different mother. And then there's Milcah, the wife of Nahor, the daughter of Haran. So that means that she is both Abram's sister-in-law and his niece. Okay, I know that's a lot of complex family relations. Here's a little tree to help us understand it. You may notice from a quick glance at this that among Abram's relatives, we have some married close relations. This would be considered incest today. But this is not unsurprising in the days after Babel. Years following Babel, we have families and tribes separated from one another and often only marrying within themselves. In fact, we'll still see some close marriage relationships as we keep going with the history of the patriarchs. This appears to be something that God tolerated in the most beginning days, especially uh, starting with Adam and then after Noah and Babel. This would be something that God would forbid later on in the law of Moses. There would not be these close marriage relationships. And of course, those are still forbidden today. But it's something that God appeared to have tolerated at this time. And it's something we see in Abram's own family. Now, back to more observations here. Notice the little aside we're given about Sarai. She is barren. Now, remember, that's a big deal back in these days. And it's going to be a big deal in the narrative as we continue. But it's first mentioned here. Now, notice that this family, Terah and his descendants, they go on a little migration. Verse 31 says, or actually indicates to us where they intended to go. From Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan. Terah and his family intended to go all the way there. Now, we've mentioned the city of Ur in class before. Ur was apparently a large city in Chaldea or southern Mesopotamia. You can see it on the map all the way there on the right. People have done archaeological investigations of this site, and they've unearthed a huge ziggurat, or rather the base of a huge ziggurat in this city. And they've discovered that in Ur, or this site that is identified as Ur, the city was devoted to a moon god named Nana, or Sin. So this was definitely a pagan city. And this is where Terah and his family comes from. So he intends to journey from Ur to Canaan, but doesn't make it all the way to Canaan. They stop, notice at the end of verse 31 says, they stop in Haran. This would have been a journey of about 600 miles. And again, you can see it illustrated there on the map. 
going northwest. How long is 600 miles? Well, to give you a rough estimate, that's a, about the distance from New Jersey to South Carolina. So imagine going that by foot, and that's roughly the distance that Tara and his family travel. Haran likely refers to a city that's later called Haran with two R's in Assyria, and it's in modern Turkey today. Now, archaeological investigations at this city site don't reveal much about this time period. Pre-medieval life in Haran is difficult to determine though it appears to have been a commercial city on a trade route. Now, you might be wondering, why did Tara and Abram, why did they go up and not simply west? Well, what's the answer? That's right, there's a big desert in the way. Uh, obviously, or there's the trade routes too, so that would have been a well, more well-worn path if you go northwest, but if you go simply west, you probably won't make it to your destination because you will die in the desert. So this is why when people are trying to travel to Israel in ancient times, they're always going around the desert and coming in from the north. Even invading empires like Babylon or Assyria, they're always coming from the north, which also has something to do with some eschatological prophecies regarding Israel's enemies in the last days. Which direction are they coming from? Some, some prophecies in the Old Testament identified as the north. That's why, because there aren't that many ways to get to Israel of the geography surrounding it, the sea and the desert. So for Tara and his crew to make it to Israel, they have to go around. But again, Tara doesn't make it because he stops in Iran and he actually dies there. Verse 32, Tara dies at the age of 205. Still an impressively long lifespan. But as we saw from Genesis 11, those lifespans have been getting less and less. Now Genesis 12 opens with a sudden call or command from God from Abram to travel again. And verse one relates several aspects of this command that Abram might have found a little difficult. Notice why this would be so, because in the words God says to Abraham, he essentially tells Abraham, leave your country, leave the land you know and you've gotten used to, leave your relatives, the people you know and that you lived with for years, People who have been your supports and your allies, leave your father's house. You're no longer going to live under or follow your father's leadership or your older brother's leadership. Instead, go to the place that I will show you. I won't tell you now where you are going exactly, but just move in a certain direction. I will direct you on where you should go. Now, Hebrews 11.8, and we'll say more about that passage later, it says explicitly that Abram did not know where he was going when he set out. And we see that partially reflected in the commands that God gives to Abram. Go to the land which I will show you. But with these commands, as part of this call, there are some promises. And notice these promises because they are extremely important. They are going to inform a lot of what comes later in the Old Testament. We have a set of promises in verses 2 and 3 here. And notice what they are. God promises to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be honored. I will make you a blessing. Then he says, people will be blessed or cursed based on how they treat you. Now here, the ESV translation of the verse is a little bit more helpful than the New American Standard. 
both good translations, but the ESV is a little bit better. In the ESV, the first part of verse three reads, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So Nasby says, him who curses you, I will curse, but ESV says him who dishonors you, I will curse. Why is it not quite equivalent in the ESV, the English Standard Version? That's because in the Hebrew, there is a difference. God is telling Abram, if they bless you, I'll bless them. But if they so much as dishonor you, if they treat you lightly, treat you contemptuously, if they only do that, I will curse them. I will go all out and curse them. You don't mess with Abram when God has placed his favor and his promise on him. If you so much as treat him lightly, God will curse you. And you do not want to be cursed by Almighty God. Then finally, notice the end of verse 3. God tells Abram, In you I will cause all the families of the earth to be blessed. Now that's interesting. All families. That means all people. Not just Abram's physical descendants. Oh, Calvary, are we still connected? I just lost uh, the video. Okay, can you not see me? So you can't see me. Oh, you can see me. Okay, well I can't see you, so I'll just I'll just keep going. I guess hopefully it'll come back. All right, so these are pretty hefty promises in verses two and three. I can hear you guys, but I can't see you, so that's good enough. But what does Abram do in response to God's call and God's promises? Well, Abram obeys. Abram obeys God and he leaves Haran. Now notice how old Abram is when he does this. According to verse 4, he's 75 years old. Notice who Abram takes with him as he sets out. Takes his wife Sarai, takes his nephew Lot, takes all these servants he acquired in Haran. That term could be slaves or servants. It's a somewhat broad term in Hebrew. All these people he acquired, he takes them and he takes his possessions, takes his acquired possessions. And Abram probably had a good amount of these things. And the fact that specifically mentioned in the text means he probably spent a good amount of time in Iran. He acquired servants there. He acquired people there. Abram travels to Canaan, specifically to the town of Shechem, a Canaanite town about 30 miles north of Jerusalem. You can also see that on the map in the section around Canaan. This would have been about 400 mile trek. So think South Carolina to Florida. If you combine that with the other leg of the journey, about New Jersey to Florida. So a good distance by foot. This is Abram's journey. He arrives at Shechem, and there the Lord appears to Abram. And notice the additional promise that God gives to Abram there. God says, the land belonging to the Canaanites, it's going to belong to your descendants, Abram. To your descendants, I will give this land. And notice what Abram does in response to this, this new affirmation. Abram builds an altar there at Shechem. And verse 8 says he builds another altar when he arrives at what would later be called Bethel, the site Bethel, seven miles north of Jerusalem. And there, the text says, Abram also called upon the name of Yahweh. And we've seen this phrase before. He's calling upon the name of the Lord. We saw it in Genesis 5, describing some of the descendants of Shem. We see it out throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 105, 1, for example. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh. Call upon his name. Or Psalm 116, verses 3 and 4. 
The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow, and then I called upon the name of Yahweh. O oh, Yahweh, I beseech you, save my life. I'll just give you a flavor of what that phrase means. But Abram doesn't stay in Bethel. He keeps moving. And notice our passage ends with Abram journeying on toward verse 9, or in verse 9, toward the Negev. And what's the Negev? That's that southern desert area beneath what would later be the land of Judah. So he's moving south. And that's where our passage ends. All right, having made these observations, let's now proceed to some interpretation questions. And we've got a bunch. First, why did Terah leave Ur with Abram for Canaan? I mean, isn't, isn't this about Abram's call? Why does Terah go with him? And why does it say Terah intended to go to Canaan? Now, we're not told specifically in the text why this is. There's some indication that Terah's purpose was to go to Canaan. But we do hear this in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, or Acts chapter 7, verses 2 and 4, 2 to 4. This is Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin, and he's rehearsing some biblical history. And Stephen says this, Acts 7, verses 2 to 4. And he said, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. Hmm. Now that's very interesting. According to Stephen, when did God first call Abram? Was it at Haran? According to Stephen, it wasn't in Haran. It was in Ur when he was still in Mesopotamia in the land of the Chaldeans. So for whatever reason Terah might have had to move, he was probably aware that his son was already being called by God, already wanting to go to Canaan. And so perhaps for that reason, Terah decided to go to Abram, what's called in Ur and in Haran, to follow God and to go where God sent him. Here's another question. Why do Terah and Abram settle in Haran? God calls them to Canaan. Why do they stop in Haran? We don't know. Text doesn't say specifically. It could be for a negative reason or a positive reason. It might be that Abram was hesitant to keep going, to depart his family. They were perhaps content to live in Haran. And the call to Abram in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, it does emphasize that Abram needs to separate from his family, separate from his country. Maybe that was difficult for him to do until after his father died. Or they make maybe a more positive, more innocent reason. Maybe that Terah and the whole crew was planning to go to Canaan, but Terah fell ill and he wasn't able to travel further. And Abram wanted to stay with his father until he died. Or maybe God is leading Abram along and he hasn't given specific directions all the way to Canaan. And so he has him stop in Haran for a time. And he waits for God's specific word to set out again. Could be. Though it is interesting, the text does say that from Ur, 
Terra intended to go to Canaan. So maybe they already knew that Canaan was the ultimate destination, even if they didn't know exactly where in Canaan. And it's not like they would have been super aware of geography at that time. It's not like they had a map that they could just pull out from a textbook or something like that. They may have had a general idea of where Canaan was, but they definitely needed God to, to show them, or Abram certainly did it at the least. So don't know why he stopped in Iran, but it's not necessarily because it was a sinful thing. It could have been a positive thing. Another question, why does Abram keep moving around even when he comes to Canaan? He waited, wanted to go to Canaan, and why do you keep moving, Abram? Again, not said specifically, not told specifically in the text, but we can think of some pretty fine reasons. It could be that God is still directing Abram around. The text doesn't say that. Could be, though. It might be that Abram's getting more acquainted with this land of promise. We'll see that specifically commanded of Abram in Genesis 13. God says, hey, take a look around this land. Walk about it. Maybe he's already doing that, beginning of chapter 12. It may be, though, that as someone who has a lot of animals, that he just needs to keep finding fresh pasture. He's a somewhat nomadic lifestyle. He's a man who dwells in tents. He doesn't have a permanent location. He's going to keep moving along with his animals so that they can get their sustenance and continue to prosper. I think it's probably the most likely reason why he keeps moving. But again, the text doesn't tell us specifically. Now, here's a more important question. Was Abram a pagan? Was he an idolater when God first called him? Now, the text doesn't say he was. Doesn't say that specifically, but there's good reason to think that pagan that Abram was not someone who followed Yahweh and was a pagan before God called him. Do notice that we don't see with Abram any particular description of righteousness like we saw with Noah. Remember Noah? We get this threefold description of righteousness. Or even Job. Job gets a fourfold description of righteousness. But when we get to Abram, we don't see that. Moreover, we noted that Ur was a pagan city. And listen to what Joshua says. Joshua, in Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Joshua 2, verses 2 to 3. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, From ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, that's a reference to the land of Mesopotamia and Babylon. Namely, Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Oh, that's interesting. God, through Joshua, reminds the people that their forefathers, Terah himself included, they served foreign gods. But God called Abram and his descendants out from that way of living. So Terah is not a follower of Yahweh necessarily. Then it's a good reason, that Ab a good reason to believe that Abram was not either. So that leads to another question. Why then does God choose Abram? Why should Abram receive such calling and blessings from God if he's not particularly righteous not even a Yahweh follower as far as we know why should his descendants be so blessed well what's the only answer that we can really say 
was right. It's just because of God's grace and his sovereignty. It pleased God to do this for Abram and to do this for the world through Abram. Abram did nothing to merit God's call or blessings. He appears to be a wicked idolater, just like the rest of his family, just like his neighbors in the city that, cities that he lived. But God decided to show himself to Abram and to pour out undeserved favor on Abram and through him to all the world. From Abram, God was going to bring forth a special people, people for God's own possession, a holy people, a kingdom of priests, as we'll hear specifically said in the book of Exodus. Kingdom of priests that will witness to and intercede for all the peoples of the earth. God was not obligated to do this for Abram, for his particular descendants. God did have his promises that he needed to fulfill, but not specifically through Abram. Nevertheless, he did choose Abram. It was pleasing to God to pour out undeserved love on some, Abram and his descendants, in this way and show forth God's glory. And of course, this is just like us, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Why does God love you? Why has God seen fit to bless you by revealing salvation to you? Was it because you have some merit? You're better, you're smarter, you're more righteous than the rest, and that's why God showed you such grace? Of course, that nullifies what grace is, right? Grace is favor that has no pays no attention to merit. And we know from the rest of scripture that before God saved us, we were just as hopelessly in sin as the rest, dead in our transgressions and sins, as Ephesians 2, 1 says. We were rebels against God, clothed in right, or unrighteous rags. We might not have been as obviously evil as maybe some other people in the world, but we were. Evil corrupted every part of our lives, whether in self-righteousness or in open rebellion. But nevertheless, because our God is merciful, because he's sovereign, because he does whatever pleases him, he chose to set his love on you. It pleased God to love you, care for you, mark you out as his possession, and to show his glory to you and through you. That's just the same thing that God did with Abram. This is just God's, that principle. God will have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. We see that on display here with Abram. And this was a very great gift. This was a very undeserved gift to Abram and really to the whole world. And I say the whole world because of Genesis 12.3. What is the significance of that phrase? The second part, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What's that talking about? Certainly, the full significance of this phrase would not have been comprehended by Abram at that time. Abram wouldn't know and have exactly wouldn't have known exactly what this means. But God was revealing to Abram that his plans for Abram went beyond Abram and even Abram's descendants. God was going to work good for all families of the world through Abram and through Abram's descendants. This may remind you of a certain similar promise that comes later in the book of Genesis. Genesis 26:4, God is speaking to Isaac. To Isaac in Genesis 26, 4, God says, And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The word offspring 
And the New American Standard is literally the word seed in Hebrew. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, where have we heard an, an important promise about a seed already in the book of Genesis? That'd be Genesis 3.15, the curse on the serpent. This is one of those verses that if you can, you want to know. It's very, very important. The proto-evangelium, that, that first description of the gospel. God says, from the seed of the woman will come one who will crush your head, O serpent, and you will only bruise his heel. The seed, the offspring, the line of descent, one from that line. God says to Abram and to Isaac later, more about this saving seed. More information is being revealed about this one who is to come. This line of descent that will culminate in a certain person. Little by little, this Savior is being revealed. And of course, it's going to keep on doing that through Genesis, through the Torah, and as we move through the Old Testament. But of course, as Christians, we're at the end of that revelation. And so we know exactly who that is. Who is this promised seed who will bless all families or who will result in blessing to all families of the earth? That's Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Messiah. He is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He's the promised one in the promise of Genesis 12.3 and in Genesis 26.4. But Abram didn't know this specifically, not yet. Nor did his ancient contemporaries. But already in their lives, they could see that God's plan was moving forward. God's plan was in motion. He was accomplishing something through them. And there's more revelation about a savior to come. Abram had an important part to play in this plan of God. This is not a reactionary plan. As God says, all right, got that thing done. What am I going to do next? Nope, it's, it's all playing out exactly as God ordained. And he's using Abraham as part of it. Now, Abram responds to God's call in Haran and even in Ur with obedience. But why? Why did Abram obey God? You might not have expected this of him, pagan, former idolater. No, no particular reason to obey God. So why does he? He clearly does. Why does he? The answer must be Abram believed him. Abram believed God. God said these words to Abram, and Abram believed them. We haven't yet heard the critical verse that articulates this. Another great Old Testament verse for you to know and memorize, if you can, is Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6, where we hear this description, Then he, that's Abraham, believed in Yahweh, and he, that's God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. It's an extremely important verse because it reveals in the Old Testament that concept of justification by faith was there. This is not some New Testament idea. It was there in all the scriptures. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. But it wasn't that Abraham first believed God in Genesis 15. That's really what he's doing all along. By faith, Abraham believes God and therefore obeys God's commands. 
Now, as we've already seen in our previous lessons, faith itself is a gift from God. It's not as if Abram could hold up his head high and say, hey, I had faith, and that's why God called me. Or I had faith, and that's why God blessed me. No, God blessed you with faith, and then that's why God was able to bless you more. Faith itself is a gift of God. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. And that's why Abram obeys. God gave him the gift of faith. But let's drill down a little bit more on what this faith consisted of. What was Abram looking forward to? Was he simply excited about all these specific material blessings from God? I mean, let's face it, the things that God promises, they, they have to do with the things of the world. Many descendants, a great name, a blessed life, a land to call his own, or a land to call his own for his descendants. Is Abram strictly motivated by material interests? In other words, could Satan lay the same charge at Abram's door as he does against Job? Could Satan go before God and say, you know why Abram obeys you? Because you promised or you do bless him materially. That's it. He's just motivated by materialism. Take away his worldly blessings. Take away the descendants that you promised him. And Abram will curse you to your face. Could Satan say that about Abram? Before we answer that question, let's go to the New Testament. Take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 11. Because here in Hebrews 11, we get a commentary. It helps us not miss what's really happening in the call of Abram. Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 16. Now, if you know about the book of Hebrews, this is a book written to Christians who are being persecuted, particularly Jewish Christians. They're under pressure to renounce faith in Jesus. Just go back to Judaism. You won't experience as much suffering if you just go back to being a Jew. The Roman Empire doesn't like Christians, but they tolerate the Jews. Jews, of course, persecuted Christians also. But the writer of Hebrews is encouraging these Jewish Christians not to renounce their faith in Jesus, but to persevere, persevere by faith. And in chapter 11, we have this famous Hall of Faith chapter, or the Faith Hall of Fame, where the writer is calling his listeners, his, his audience, to persevere by looking to the examples of faithful Old Testament saints. Of course, when I say saints there, I don't mean Roman Catholic saints or something like that. I just mean people who believed God in the past, people who lived lives of faith. He says, look at them. Look at the kind of faith that they had. That's the kind of faith you need. Now, one of, the, one of those faithful ones that the author highlights is Abraham. He calls him Abraham, even though technically the time period he's referring to, uh, Abram, Abraham was still called Abram, but that's all right. Abraham, Abram, doesn't really matter. Let's hear what the author of Hebrews has to say about Abraham's call. So Hebrews 11, starting in verse 8, going down to verse 16. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, 
dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Or he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there is born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is very interesting. Notice a few aspects of this New Testament passage. Notice which promise of God to Abraham is highlighted in verses 8 to 9. It's the land promise, promise of a land inheritance. But verse 10 says that Abraham was waiting specifically for what? For a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Such a city is contrasted with the living conditions that Abram or Abraham actually experienced. He lived in tents that were pitched in a foreign land. So in other words, did Abraham receive the promised land while he was alive? He didn't. He lived as a foreigner and an exile. And then in verses 11 to 12, we have a reference to another promise from God to Abraham, that promise to multiply Abraham's descendants and make a great nation of him. Did Abraham receive this promise while he was still alive? He didn't. He had one descendant of promise, Isaac. He did not become a great nation during his lifetime. Instead, look what verse 13 says. It says, while he and his next descendants did not receive those specific promises, what did they do? They welcomed those promises from a distance and they confessed themselves, all of them, to be strangers and exiles on the earth. And now look at verses 14 to 16. Though Abraham was grateful for these earthly promises, what was it that Abraham was really looking toward? A country of his own, a better country, a heavenly country, the country where God dwells. Ah, now this is the critical point from the writer of Hebrews. Why did Abraham obey God? Well, he had faith. But what was at the heart of his faith? What was motivating Abraham? What was the promise that he was clinging to the most? Was it a promise of earthly blessing? No, it cannot merely be that, because he never received it. And he could have had opportunity to receive an earthly blessing if he wanted to by not following God. So what motivated Abraham then? It was the sweet prospect of going to God's country, 
God's city. Or to say it another way, the most exciting part of the promise that Abram gets in Genesis 12 is the one making the promise. It's like Abraham responds to God in this way in his heart. God has revealed himself to me. He has set his favor on me. There's a way that I can know and one day be with the God who is. This was Abram's greatest blessing. God did, did give other great promises that have to do with earthly blessings to Abraham. But Abraham saw that that wasn't the best part. There was greater treasure ahead because God had revealed himself to Abraham and made himself Abraham's God. This ought to be instructive for us. We need to apply personally the exhortation of Hebrews 11 to ourselves, even what God says about Abraham. And so I want you to think through a series of questions with me. Are you like Abraham when it comes to faith? Would you like to be? Are you afraid to leave the familiar country and the family that is the world? Do you see a better country before you? The place where the God of all joy and life dwells. Think about what Colossians 3 verses 1 to 5 say. Colossians 3, 1 to 5, it says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Hear those words from Colossians, from the Apostle Paul, from the Spirit of God. Do you seek the things above? as really Abram did? Or is your mind set on the things above and on Christ? On what things of the world have you set your mind or set your hope or set your joy? If you were to embrace the lifestyle of one of these God-inheriting heroes of faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, if you were to become like a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth, what would have to change in your life that really were to be a reality for you? Do you really believe what God says about himself is true? Do you believe that God is faithful, that you can hold to his promises? Do you believe he has the best in mind for you when he forbids you from certain sins? And when he commands you to follow his ways, do you believe that God's ways are all good and sweet and wise? Truly, heaven-mindedness, eternity-mindedness, they ought to set us apart from the people of our world as Christians. 
because God has shown us that there is another country, a better country where he is, and that's what he wants us looking forward to. Our attitude must not be as the attitude is of the world. Have as much fun as you can before it's all over. No, instead, we ought to think, prepare for the happiness that is ahead and welcome it now. Lay up treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. Pursue deeds that will result in your joy when Jesus comes and when Jesus judges all your works. Don't pursue that which will simply burn up. Believe God that the happiest life is the one that is given up for Christ and for the sake of his gospel. The worst life lived is the one that sought to squeeze every ounce of happiness from the world and from its passing pleasures. This is what Abraham understood. This is what Abram understood fundamentally. And that's why he obeyed. Though he did slip at times, Abraham was not perfect in his faith his following God, but generally he was. Fundamentally, he was a person who was looking forward to the heavenly country, and he was excited about it. So do you understand that same perspective? Is your mind captured by the truth in such a way that your life reflects it? If not, what needs to change in your life? What needs to change in your life to bring it into conformity to what what is truly real? That heavenly country. What are some steps? What are some practical steps you can take toward making these changes in your life? Bringing about these changes in your life. And if you need help, who are some mature believers you can talk to about? Life is short. Heaven with Christ is forever. So let's be sober not waste these gracious days that God has given us. Now today we've seen God's gracious call to Abram. We've seen Abram's response by faith that looked beyond even the earthly promises to the goodness of God himself. But what are some questions you have about today's lesson? I still can't see you, so you'll have to just say the question. I, I can't see your hand if you raise it. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. 
That's good. That's a good observation. I hadn't thought about that before. Thanks for sharing that. Just briefly summarize what, what you mentioned. That later on, we have details from Abram's relatives when Abram was seeking a bride for Isaac that they know about the God of Abraham. And they seem to give some credence to the God of Abraham. You know, when Abraham's servant mentions following the will of Yahweh to find a bride for Isaac, they, they know about that and they want to go along with that. That is very interesting, and it does speak to some knowledge about even Yahweh. I don't know if that's from Abraham specifically, but then it may be just that knowledge of God that from Babel was still around in the world. It is interesting, though, that Laban's family does appear to have syncretistic tendencies at the least, because, oh, actually, no, I'm thinking of Rachel. No, she's the one who steals the gods. Well, let's just say that Laban was not exactly a, a righteous follower of, of God, uh, of Yahweh, all by himself. Wait, let me get my, my patriarchs all, all sorted out here. Laban. All right, I had to think through that a little bit more. I, it's, I sometimes get Rebecca and Rachel confused, and who's the ones who stole the gods? So I had to think through that a little bit more. But it is an interesting comment, Roy. I have to think about that. Think about that more as to how how much evidence is that that Abram's relatives knew about Yahweh. It is interesting, as you point out too, that he says, "Don't take a daughter from the people of the land." They obviously would have been taken. There's a better chance that the specific relatives of Abraham would have been followers of the true God. Very interesting point. I have to think about that more. If you have other questions, hang on to them. I do want to mention a few other application questions before we close. These are a little bit more specific than what I've already mentioned, generally by application. Hopefully you see the answers to these questions from our lesson today. Here's the first one. We know that God has promised to reward those who place their faith in him. When can we expect to receive those rewards? Hmm. I have to be careful about that word expect, right? expectations, we may receive some rewards from God while we are on the earth. But we should not expect them. Or we should, we should not allow whatever rewards or blessings we experience to divert us from Christ whenever they appear in our lives. You know, sometimes when things are going well, don't just say to yourself, oh, God is blessing me. God is rewarding me. You know, God may also be testing you because blessings can can be the excuse for why we turn away from God. We must remember that our inheritance is ultimately in heaven. Suffering and striving in this world is our primary calling so that we might enjoy and increase our heavenly reward. We thank God for what he gives us in our lives. But if he chooses not to bless us materially or provide us easy circumstances, we know he's still being good to us and we have a reward to come. Here's another question. Have you ever heard the expression, you are so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good? Is this a biblically grounded idea in light of what we've been studying today? Not really. 
those who are truly heavenly minded are also the ones who are doing earthly good. If you are heavenly minded and you're not accomplishing earthly good, well, you're not truly heavenly minded. You have a twisted view of what it means to be seeking the things above. If you truly see Christ, if you truly are seeking that which is to come, you will be motivated to obey God on the earth. And that includes loving your fellow man. Rather, the main issue is not that Christians are too heavenly minded. It's that Christians are not heavenly minded enough. Not rightly heavenly minded. We do need to be seeking the things above. And that's what's going to help us actually obey the Lord and be useful while we're on the earth. There's another question. How does the world react to the idea of storing up treasures in heaven rather than seeking to build fortunes or just seek the pleasures here on earth? Of course, this is extremely antithetical to their thinking. This is, this is very strange to them. They might say that this is wishful thinking. This is silliness. Why are you not paying attention to just what you can see and feel and believing in this afterlife and all these things that, that you can't see? It's all going to end when you die. Just be true to your impulses. Be true to yourself. Don't deny the things and desires you have. And then they might even be offended, convicted by this lifestyle from Christians. This was already promised to us in the scriptures. Jesus said, they're going to persecute you. They persecuted me. And in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 5, we won't take the time to read it, but it says, when you arm yourself for suffering, when you lay aside that old life, they're not going to understand this. They'll be surprised you don't run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And so what do they do? They malign you. But what does God say? Keep looking towards the judgment. They are going to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And you have, a, you have to give an account to him too. He'll reward you if you are uh, one who truly belongs to him. And he will... He will curse you. He will judge you forever if not. Keep looking to the things above. And then just a reminder of that last, that last thought. In what ways are you failing to set your minds on things above and how can you seek to change this attitude? We certainly want to think more of, oh, you know what? I just need to think more about the things above. I need, I need to do that. But get specific. Get concrete. How can you do that? What are some practical changes you can make in your life to help you set your mind on things above? Are there certain pursuits that you need to cut out of your life? Maybe certain relationships that are not helping you to do that. Maybe you need to add certain relationships to your life. Maybe you need to uh, pursue a discipleship relationship or more fellowship with the church. Or maybe you need to integrate a, a new Bible study into your life or a time of prayer. There are so many different things you can do to help make yourself more heavenly minded. But it starts with practical steps to so just say, ah, I got to do better next time. That usually leads to no change. We are going to be fighting against the flesh and the spiritual forces of darkness if we're going to set our minds on things above. And that will not be easy. So it takes perseverance. It takes, as Paul says, hitting your body underneath the eye, putting it into submission. And this is what we want to do for the sake of the reward, for the sake of the blessing of God. So think about what are some ways that you can do this for your own life. Now that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to look at how Abram and Lot end up splitting up. This is interesting. This is actually one of the new lessons of the Answers Bible Curriculum 2nd Edition. 
what you've been mostly hearing from me is just upgraded versions, refined versions of the previous version lessons, but this one's totally new. So looking forward to exploring this passage with you together next time. But let's close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for these people, Lord, that you have called, just as you called Abram. And Lord, you have set apart for blessing, not because of anything they deserve, not because of anything I deserve, God, but just because you are merciful. You've chosen to set your love on us. We thank you for that, God, but help us to be heavenly minded. Help us to have that same kind of faith that Abraham did and that motivated him to obey you and to welcome your promises from afar. I pray that we'd be doing the same, God, should give wisdom to the to those who are here today as to what kind of practical steps they can take in that direction. Pray, God, that we would all become more like Jesus Christ and enjoy his peace, his joy more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. And Lord willing, I will see you next time and not just hear you. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs>